So now let's take a moment and uh, turn to God's Word. We're in the middle of this series that we're calling The Story of God. And tonight our text is Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. And then a couple of chapters later, Exodus 24, 1 through 8. It's printed in your bulletin and is also going to be projected on the wall. This is the Word of God. Moses wrote these words, but God really wrote through Moses. And so these words have authority. These words are true. And these words are meaningful to you now, no matter what's going on in your life. So give them your attention as we hear from God tonight. I'll read beginning in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now moving to chapter 24 of the same book, beginning in verse 1. Then he, that is the Lord, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Let's pray and ask God to help us as we try to understand this part of his word. Father, tonight we ask that you would come again and work as you have done through the ages, in local gatherings of people who trust in Jesus all over the world. Father, we pray tonight that you would work faith in our hearts. Help us to believe that you are good, that you are real, that what you say is true, 
and that following you leads us not into slavery, but actually it leads us into freedom. And help us tonight, O Father, to understand the grace of your law. Help us tonight, O God, whether we're coming from a place of unbelief or doubt, or whether we're coming from a place of strong and growing faith in Jesus. Help us to see that the things that you call us to do are for our good. You are not out to get us, but rather you love and care for us. And help us to see that Jesus himself did not come to abolish the law, as he says, but to fulfill it. And through faith in him, we too fulfill your good and holy law. So make us tonight people who by your grace are obedient lovers of your good law. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Lots of, lots of rules in Exodus chapter 20. Lots of commandments. Lots of laws begin to be spoken by God to God's people, beginning there in Exodus 20 and continuing really in large measure through the rest of Exodus and into the further coming books of the Bible. Some people, when they begin to read and hear in the Bible all these rules and all these commandments and all these things that we're supposed to do and not do, they might get a little, a little skittish, a little nervous. They might start thinking, okay, I've been reading the Bible or thinking about Christianity for a while, but I knew this was coming. This is just another way for someone to have power over me. And largely, that's something that I think I can understand, especially given the culture that we find ourselves in now. So what are we to make of the rules, of the law that we find in the Bible? What are we to make of the Ten Commandments? And how do they fit into the larger story of God? We've been looking at this story for the last few months now. We started all the way back in the beginning of Genesis. And last time we read and talked for a few minutes about the idea and the event of the Exodus where God rescues his people, the descendants of Abraham, out of bondage and slavery to the Egyptians. And through his miraculous power, he parts the Red Sea and they go across free at last. And now God brings them to the foot of the mountain and begins to speak to them through Moses and indeed speak to them directly. And largely what we see here is again, God speaking law, commandments to them. So how does this idea of law fit into the story of God? How does it fit into your particular stories now? Well, there's, again, many things that we could say about that. I just want to tell you two things tonight from the scriptures that I hope you'll take home and remember. First, the law flows out of grace. That's the first thing I want you to get. The law flows out of grace. And second, the law flows into freedom. The law flows out of grace and the law flows into freedom. So first, the law flows out of grace. Look at chapter 20 of Exodus again. By the time we reach this chapter, as I just said, God has... God has already rescued his people out of Egypt through this miraculous ransom and rescue. And he's brought them to the borders of this land that he promised to Abraham so many hundreds of years ago. And then he calls Moses up to Mount Sinai and he begins speaking to Moses. 
at the foot of the mountain and he tells the people to purify themselves and approach God because tomorrow God is going to meet with with all the people. So the entire people of Israel who've just been rescued out of Egypt, are they're camped out at the base of Mount Sinai waiting to hear from God. And Moses comes down the mountain after spending time with God and what they receive is instruction. They receive rules. They receive the Ten Commandments which we read here in Exodus chapter 20. And then we have uh, in Exodus 24 sort of a a define the relationship. It's a DTR between God and his people. God says, here's the way it's going to be if you're going to be my people. And the people say, we get it, God. We want a part of this. The covenant is ratified. That's what was happening there when that blood is sprinkled on the people. The people say, everything you're saying we will do, And we all kind of chuckled when they said that because we know the story is not going to go that way. And God said, here is what it looks like to follow me. So that's what's happening here. But what I want you to understand and really what you have to understand, if you want to get the larger picture of the law of God as it relates to God's story, to the story of God, is this. In the larger context of the Bible, and especially here in the larger context of Exodus, you have to get that God at this point has already, he has already rescued and saved his people out of sheer love and grace. And now, after that, he's giving them rules and commandments to live by. The law flows out of grace. Grace precedes law. Chapter 20, verse 2, it can't be overestimated how important this verse is to the larger story of the Ten Commandments. God says, first, notice, first, I am the Lord your God who brought you out. I've saved you out of the land of Egypt. I have redeemed you. I've brought you out of the house of slavery. And only then does he say, therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. You see, God first declares to the people what he has already done for them by grace. And only after that does he give them the commandments. That's really, really crucial because I want you to hear it again. Um, God's first word to you is not do this. God's first word to you is, I love you. His first word to you is is a word of, of grace and mercy. God begins and opens with grace. And only after that does he command us to keep his rules and obey him. You see, he loves us and rescues us before he gives us the rules that he expects us to obey. Grace precedes law. The law flows out of grace. A couple of things, a couple of reasons why I think that's important. First, I want you to get that that idea is utterly unique to Christianity among all the religions of the world. You see, only Christianity says... Um, if, if, uh, if, sorry, every other religion of the world says this, if you obey me, if you do what I say, then I will accept you and love you and you can be one of my people. Uh, Buddhism says, if you complete certain steps to spiritual fulfillment, then you can achieve nirvana and enlightenment. Uh, Islam says, if you will follow Allah and submit your entire life to him, then you can become one of his people. 
Good old-fashioned moralism says, if you're a pretty decent person who pays your taxes and raises your kids pretty well and does pretty much what you're supposed to do, then probably most things are going to go well for you. Every other religion of the world says, if you do X, Y, and Z, then you can be a part of what we're about here. Christianity, on the other hand, is exactly the opposite at its core. Christianity says, because I have already done everything for you, you can therefore be accepted and obey. The God of the Bible doesn't wait for us to get our acts together and fully obey him before he will accept us. The God of the Bible first accepts us, makes us his people, and rescues us, and then says, here is what it looks like to follow me. That's, that's unique among all religions of the world. It's, it's unique about Christianity as far as thinking about our relationship with God. Christianity is opposed at the core to any scheme that says you must do this in order to be accepted. Christianity says you are accepted by grace, therefore do this. Another practical point to make here. If, if you ever really want, listen, if you ever really want to grasp Christianity, if you ever really want to be affected and changed by the gospel and the way of Jesus, then you have to understand this idea that I've just been speaking about. That you come to God, rather God comes to you first by grace, not by your own effort or works or obedience to the law. But, but most of us don't really live that way. In fact, most of us are functional legalists. And we can be functional legalists whether we've been in church most of our life or whether this is our first time in a church in years. You see, most of us really operate in the day-to-day as if God's favor depends on how well we are doing. Some of you are functional legalists from the religious angle. That is, you tend to think, and you might not voice this because you've been in church too long and you're smart enough to know that church people don't say this sort of stuff, but you think this way. You think... Because I know a lot about the Bible, because I was raised in the church and went to Sunday school every week, because I vote the right way or dress the right way or have the right friends, because I've never really done anything too bad and always try to do things pretty well, because I've got a pretty good marriage and I'm trying my best to raise good kids and teach them the Bible, because of all these things, I'm accepted by God. And, and you, you tend to think, or at least live, as if God is going to treat you based on how well you think you're doing spiritually. If, you're, if your walk is strong, if you've had a quiet time every day for the last three weeks, you think, you, you think man, I feel really close to God. I'm, I'm doing really well. You're, you're at the top of that spiritual roller coaster. But on the other hand, if you've missed a few weeks of church, or if you don't feel good about some things going on in your life, you... You think, God must really, really be unhappy with me. You see, you're living functionally as if what you do is the basis of your relationship with God. And most of you probably do that from the religious angle. But some of you do that, you're functional legalists, from an irreligious angle. That's possible as well, you know. Rather than thinking, um, I've done all of these good things and I've tried really hard to be nice and moral and good, God must love me, you think... Because I've done so many bad things. Because 
I've been promiscuous or I've done a lot of drugs or I've never been to church or I've never, I don't even own a Bible or I don't know the first thing about praying or I hang out with a really, really bad crowd. Because I do all these things, there's no way God could ever accept or love me. You see, the religious person thinks that God loves them based on what they do. And you think that God doesn't love you if you're irreligious based on what you failed to do. But both of you, you see, are legalists. Both of you believe, whether you're religious or irreligious, that your relationship at the end of the day with God depends on what you've done or what you failed to do. The gospel says that your relationship with God does not primarily depend on what you do or don't do. It primarily depends on what God has done for you in Jesus. You see, the gospel shatters the functional legalism that we so often live with, whether, whether from a religious angle or from an irreligious angle. Because the gospel says Jesus, in his life and death and resurrection, has done everything that is necessary for you to be accepted by God. God loves you, and it's not based on how lovable you are. God will love you no matter what you've done. If you trust in Jesus, because your acceptance before God, according to Christianity, is not based on your failures and it's not based on your successes. It's based on Jesus's work for you. That's what we call grace. God has done everything that's needed to be done through Jesus for you to be accepted by him. And so you can get off of the religious or the irreligious treadmill that you so often find yourselves on. You know, that's really the first and most important thing that you have to get about the law. Is that the law, the rules, the commandments that you read in the Bible flow out of what God has already done. They flow out of grace. But secondly, the law of God flows into freedom. Now, you might have heard everything I've said so far and think, that sounds pretty good. But these laws are still here. (laughs) And they are. And guess what? You are expected to obey them. If you're going to follow Jesus, like they are good rules that you are to keep. Oftentimes as Christians, we become rightly infatuated with the idea of free grace. And then we draw a wrong conclusion that therefore these laws don't matter, but they do. And we would be remiss to just end the sermon here and say, it's all by grace. Don't worry about the rest. It is all by grace. But if it's really grace, it's going to change you and make you obedient to these laws. You see, the law flows out of grace. Grace comes first, but the law also flows into freedom. In other words, your relationship with God is not initiated by your obedience, but your relationship with God is maintained and cultivated by your obedience. Let me say that again to be clear. Your relationship with God is not initiated by your obedience. It's initiated by grace of God. But it is maintained and cultivated by your obedience through the grace of God. And I want to show you just in our remaining few minutes here that the law actually leads us into freedom. You know, we tend to think that laws only exist to restrict and restrain us. But the law of God actually exists to make us more free. You know, think about it this way. Put yourself there. Thousands of years ago. When Moses is coming down the mountain, say you're a sort of a skeptic. You're a skeptical ancient Jewish person. And you're at the back of the congregation of Israel as they're camped around Mount, Mount Sinai. And you've been waiting, thinking, what in the world? Come on. 
The light is green. You know, let's go. Why are we still at this mountain? And Moses finally comes down. And then he says, you shall have no other gods before me. And he begins to lay out all these rules. And you, the skeptical Israelite in the back of the congregation, think, I knew it. I knew it. I knew that you were just rescuing me out of one slavery to make me a different kind of slave. You brought me out of Egypt and freed me from that master only so that I can now serve you, my new master. That's, that's so often the way we tend to approach God's law. We tend to think that these rules are only, they're only meant to inhibit and restrain us. Or to think about the idea of freedom. We think that freedom is only defined as, as freedom from something. You know, that's quintessentially American, by the way. Um, what's more American than freedom, right? Like, we're obsessed with freedom. We have freedom fries now. Remember that? And everything is freedom. Freedom, 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 freedom. We love freedom. But our idea of freedom is that freedom is only freedom from. It's freedom from constraint. It's freedom from bondage. It's freedom from all forms of slavery. And our culture is replete with examples of this, especially in media. Uh, I think of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Remember that one? Ferris Bueller, high school kid, presented... I'm dating myself here, I know. He's presented as a hero because he's kind of the cool, rebellious kid. And who's the, the mean authoritarian figure in Ferris Bueller's Day Off? The principal, right? And uh, authority always wears a black hat in our culture, right? Another movie is Footloose. Some of you recommended that to me on Facebook this week when I asked about an illustration. Footloose. I, by the way, there's a new Footloose. Did y'all know this? 2011. I was terrified when I saw that. I was no, no idea that that's true. But I'm sure in both movies, freedom is freedom from the constraining authority figure who isn't a principal in Footloose. What is he? Yeah, he's a preacher. Preachers make the best bad authority figures in movies. And uh, the guy doesn't want them to dance in the town. And so the whole movie is about being free to dance as you want. Uh, all sorts of music in our culture is the same way. I was listening to the Beastie Boys this weekend. You've got to fight for your right to party. You wake up for school and you don't want to go. You ask your mom, please, but she still says no. The teacher's a jerk. My parents are jerks. Authority is bad. That's the idea that we have in our culture of freedom. You can listen to Beastie Boys in the car on the way home. It's okay. But the Bible actually speaks of freedom in a different way. In the Bible, freedom is not just freedom from. In the Bible, freedom is actually freedom for. It's freedom to. God's law is not meant merely to restrain you from doing certain things that God doesn't want you to do. It's meant, rather to free you to live in the sort of life and in the sort of way that you are called to live in. You know, think about a fish. A fish, as long as he is, or she, as long as the girl fish is constrained by water, they are free to swim freely, to go finding Nemo and do all the flips and all of that fun stuff. But if a fish is out of water, if a fish is released from the bondage of water, the fish is not going to live for very long, right? You know, so the Bible's view of the law and view of freedom is very, very similar. In the Bible, freedom is actually in intended to, or the law is actually intended to, to make you more free in the ways that God initially meant for you to be free. And let me just give a couple of practical examples here from the Ten Commandments to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. Take, uh, take the Ninth Commandment here. 
in Exodus. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not lie. Okay, that is a part of God's law. That is a rule that says you shall not, you are restrained. You do not have the freedom to tell lies. And so our culture tends to think, you know, that's a, that's a stupid rule. I like to kind of be able to tell a little white lie or, you know, beef up my resume, make myself look a little bit better than probably reality really is. And that's probably okay. Everybody does that. I want to be free to be able to tell a lie when it suits me. <laughs> that's basically the way we think. But actually, you're not more free when you break this commandment. You know, what happens when you become a liar? When you tell a lie about yourself to someone else, you've created a false view of reality that you are now responsible to uphold and maintain, right? And then say someone else comes along and you don't tell them the same lie about the same situation. Rather, you tell them the truth. Well, now you've got to remember who you lied to and who you told the truth to so that you can maintain all these alternate visions of reality that you've created in your head all so that your reputation can look exactly the way you want it to look. And eventually, if you lie enough, you're going to get confused. You're going to get lost. You're actually binding yourself to, to doing something that only God can do, which is hold up a view of life that is real. You're, you're making yourself a slave to the way you want these people to think about you. To just tell the truth actually makes you much more free. It enables you to live a whole and full life, freely being able to admit where you're weak, where you're, where you're strong, freely being able to admit where you fail and where you do well. And you don't anymore have the burden of trying to maintain and remember, who did I lie to here? Do I have to continue to project this image to this person? Is this a scenario where I can be honest? That is enslaving. God's law is actually good for you. It actually frees you. Take the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. Now that is certainly a law that we do not like to keep. You know, we love, really, deep in our hearts, looking at something that someone else possesses and thinking, man, I want that. And then you sort of, you flip it around in your head like you flip a mint around in your mouth. And you suck on the idea for a while. Man, I'd love to drive that car. Man, I wish I had that house. Man, I wish I played this video game that that person plays. Man, I wish I had that wife or that husband. I wish I was that smart. If I had that person's job, everything in my life would be fine. If I looked like she looks, my life would be so much better. You covet, you desire inordinately these things that are not yours. And you think that it's making you freer, but really it's making you a slave. Breaking God's law there does not make you more free. It enslaves you to all sorts of things. What do you begin to be like when you're obsessed with covetousness? Well, you get bitter, don't you? You get bitter at God and at others, and you think, I can't believe my life is like this. If my life was like that, things would be good for me. And no one really wants to be around you because you're always, you know, angry about what you don't have and what this person does have. You're breaking community. And you're, you're angry on the inside, too. You can never be just content and satisfied with what God has given you in this life for now. And you're never really able to see God as generous because you're so obsessed with the things that you don't have or that you wish you did have. And you're never actually able to be generous yourself. You've become miserly and selfish and rude. You're, you're enslaved to all sorts of terrible, terrible, terrible character issues. 
obeying God's law and simply restraining through the Spirit's work in your life from coveting actually frees you to live a full life in the way that God has called you to live it. You see, it's true with all of the commandments that God gives. They're not meant merely to restrain you. They're meant to, they're meant to provide barriers in your life so that you can live a life of wholeness. You know, the way I like to think about it is like this. Um, in, in when we lived in Tucson, I would drive north from time to time up through Phoenix into northern Arizona where it gets really mountainous. And you have to go through this really quite treacherous sort of mountain pass where the roads are very curvy. You've probably been on these in Colorado and other places. And it's dangerous. You've got to go slow. The semis are really in trouble on those sorts of roads. And you're coming down one of those roads. And there's a big sign that says, curve ahead, go slow, right? 30 miles an hour or 60 degrees here, go slow. And then there's huge guardrails, right? To prevent you from going off of the cliff. Now think about it. You are free, you're perfectly free to come down that road at 85 miles an hour with the hood down, love and life. But the result is going to be you careening over the guardrail and plunging down into the abyss below. Freedom is not just freedom from. You see, if you, if you can live within the good confines and rules that God has set for you, the guardrails of your life, you have freedom for a whole and full and God-pleasing life. The law of God is, is intended. It's intended, to, it's intended to capture you in the life in which God initially intended for you to live. And therefore, it's something that is good. We have a hard time believing that. We have a hard time living in that way. We can only do it, really, when we understand that grace comes before the law and when we were dependent upon Jesus who fulfilled it all for us. Only when we realize that Jesus didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And through faith in him, we are now able, by his grace, to fulfill it. Can we say something like the psalmist says? Oh, how I love your law. I meditated upon it day and night, for it is good. The law of God flows out of his grace. And the law of God is intended to give you the life, exactly the life, that he initially intended for you to live. It's for your freedom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for time together in your word. And oftentimes, God, the Bible challenges us and convicts us and calls us to new ways of thinking and living. And Lord, we thank you that there are many times, many instances in the scriptures where we come across commandments that you give to us. And Lord, we trust tonight that those commandments are for our good, that you are the creator and the maker of this world, that you know all things and not us, and therefore we should listen to you. And so we ask that you would make us people who love and obey your law, not because we think we're going to earn your favor in some way through it. No, we know that our favor has already been, your favor has already been won through Jesus for us. And help us out of that reality However, live in light of your law and love it because when we obey it and when we follow your ways, Father, life becomes better. We do flourish. We thrive. We live in the way that you initially intended for us to live. So make us people who are obedient to you, not obedient so that we can earn and merit our own righteousness, but obedient because of the righteousness of Jesus for us 
knowing that it is for our good. We seek your help and ask for your grace in this. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.